Hello, I'm Chris Moon, a fellow artist manager, and I will be your guide through Tough Love, Adventures in Artist Management. Today we speak with an old friend of mine, Mark Cunningham, from Red Light Management. I got to know Mark when he was just starting at Aware Records, and I had just started managing Josh Rouse. And we got to work closely together when I was running Noise Trade, as we were early supporters of Brandy Carlisle at the beginning of her career. We chat about his time at Aware, how we got into artist management, and how we both lament and miss live music during this pandemic. I find Mark to be one of the most passionate and articulate managers I've had the pleasure to work with, and I hope you enjoy our chat together. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark. Three, two, one. My name is Mark Cunningham. I work for Red Light Management, and I work with Brandy Carlisle, The War and Treaty, Noah Gunderson, The Lone Bellow, Ruth B., and Blind Pilot. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Hi, Chris. So usually to kind of get us going here and the kind of through line theme uh, of this season has been origin stories. So I'd like to, if you don't mind, kind of go back to the to the start. Uh, how did you bump into the music industry and ultimately end up in the artist management field? Well, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan the home of Amway and Steelcase. And um, I always loved music and I always loved sports. And I knew that I wanted to work in one of those two fields. I just had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what those fields look like. Um, in high school, a couple friends and I promoted a concert for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, a fundraiser at our school. And we hired like the coolest band from Grand Rapids um, called the Screaming Carrots. This was 1991. And we paid them $400. We spent $400 on a PA and we raised $400. So we sold $1,200 worth of tickets. And it felt like such a victory. It, you know, me and a couple of buddies, we were juniors in high school. Um, we would go to like other high schools in town and hang up posters and sell tickets for five bucks at lunch. And it was a lot of fun. It was a big success. And um, I don't know if that's when I got the itch to sort of be in music, but when I went to college at Michigan State, I had four internships in the music business. And one of them was, I was a college rep for Aware Records, which was this really small independent record label out of Chicago. It was founded by a, a Michigan State grad, although I, I didn't know him. Oh yeah, I didn't um, know that either, huh? Greg Latterman. Yeah. Okay. And he was from East Lansing, but I, um, you know, I was a huge fan of the label. I was a huge fan of the music that the label was working with. And the label was founded on compilation CDs of like regional bands that um, were doing well, but because there was no internet, there was no way to find out about all these other bands. So, you know, if you liked vertical horizon, you were probably going to like Jacko Pierce and from good homes and hooting the blowfish. But, if you, you know, lived in the Northeast, you wouldn't have known about those bands because they weren't sort of regional. So anyway, Greg had the great idea of like putting all these bands together on these CDs, sort of like mixtapes. And um, then these bands started getting signed by record labels and then Aware started being this incubator of talent. And when I was in college, I was a rep for this company and I get to know the people that worked in the office and there was only a few people that worked there but i would call all the time and 
ask for more posters or buy CDs because you couldn't shop online. This was 1994, 1995. And when I was graduating, they asked if I wanted to go on tour one summer. And I was like, absolutely. Wow. So they hired me to go out on the Horde tour, H-O-R-D-E. Oh, yeah. Remember that? That was like the, the hippie version of Lollapalooza founded by, I believe, Blues Traveler. So Aware was had been running the the CD store at the festival for the last few years. And it started with like Greg in his Jeep Wrangler with like a rented U-Haul by himself, you know, a whole summer of just like hawking CDs for the bands, but it was a way to get these compilations out to the world too. Um, so the summer I graduated, I went on the road for, I don't even know, like a month with the Horde tour with in a big van with some friends and, um, then I started working in the office and I remember like one of the first days or weeks I was there. I mean, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing and I don't think they did either. Greg walked up to me, put this record on my desk from this band called Stir that was from St. Louis that I loved. And he goes, get this on the radio. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was my training. And I was just like, uh, I don't know what that means. So fortunately because aware had a you know there was a lot of attention on the company because uh, all the success that all these bands were having and these bands weren't signed to the label but they were sort of being discovered through the label mm. um so aware did a joint venture deal with columbia records and because of this attention that aware had been getting greg had made a lot of friends in the business so i flew out to la and i sat with a, one of the big indie radio promoters and he like taught me how radio works and i sat there for two days while he like showed me the ropes wow. and it was an invaluable lesson of just like okay this guy who's like killing it in this business and knows how everything works is like telling me i was like 22 or something or 21 and, um so i came back tried to use all these skills that i had learned of course i was very unsuccessful um but fortunately Soon thereafter, the deal with Columbia kicked in and we signed the band Train and we put out the first Train record through the independent arm of Sony's distribution, which was Red, R-E-D. Mm -hmm. And um, so we put that record out through Red and then it sort of got upstreamed into Columbia and then it became a big Columbia priority and they had you know huge hit songs off that record. And that was my first platinum album. Wow. And so, you know, growing up and thinking about what the music business means, you think it's a wall full of platinum plaques. And um, I actually had one and I felt like I earned it and it was pretty amazing. Um, and then, you know, I was started running the rep program. I was kind of doing marketing. I was doing radio a little. It was just a really small company that, you know, our, our mission was then to like support our partners at Columbia and you know, sort of work together with them. And then um, there was this artist named Gus out of LA. And I think he was the reason Guster had to change their name to Guster because they were Gus. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And I, and uh, I think this guy's name was Gus Black, but he went, went by Gus. Anyway, we were in love with his first record. And he was looking for a record deal and a couple people in the office, we were all like, Oh my God, we got to sign this guy. He's amazing. He's the greatest. But my boss, Greg found that or had this EP from this kid named John Mayer. And it was an EP that everyone had passed on every major label passed on this guy. Mm. And Greg brought it home one weekend. He got it from John's attorney 
who was a friend of the company's. And he came back Monday morning. He was like, we got to sign this guy. This guy's unbelievable. And we were all like, what are you talking about? Like, he's like, listen to the CP. Like, you got to listen to this. So we, we, I don't, I think it was an informal vote that we took, but we all got to say, who do we want to sign Gus or John? And Greg believed so strongly in John. And I believe so strongly in Greg that I just voted for John. I was like, I trust Greg. Yeah. I'm going to go with Greg, even though I love this Gus guy. And uh, the rest was history. You know, he sold like 20 million records yeah. and all the Grammys and he's a legend now. And, and it, you know, I, we signed him and he came to the office and played for everybody. He came up from Atlanta and we were just like floored. And then I ended up tour managing Glenn Phillips, the lead singer mm -hmm. of Toad the Wet Sprocket. Um, we were working with Glenn. He was, he had become a management client and I, I'll get into that in a second, but Glenn uh, was doing like his first solo tour and he was doing like small clubs on the East coast. And we put John on as the opening act. And then I, who had never tour managed became tour manager for some reason. So I was out for like two weeks with them and I loved Toad and I loved Glenn and Glenn was amazing. But the, the, momentum that John was creating every time he would get on stage was like just so captivating and so undeniable that he would play and people's jaws would be on the floor. Right. And because they had never seen something like this, his, his guitar playing was at a level that, you know, most people could never get to. And his songwriting was incredible and it was fresh and he was young and mm -hmm. he was good looking and like and really his personality and his yeah. stories. Yeah, like just the it factor. Like right. you couldn't take your eyes off them and the songs and everything. So seeing that every night was like mind blowing for me. And then, you know, we would do a 200 cap room and he would sell 100 CDs. Like he, like yeah. half the place like truly would buy his record. And so we knew we were onto something with John and he, he went and made the first record and we released that uh, again independently through that distribution arm, Red. Mm -hmm. And then like six months later, Columbia picked it up and re-released the record with a new cover. And so that original version with a cover that you can't find anymore was, um, it was like a really special moment for all of us that were involved because it's like we had this little secret and we had this little record that was just like, you know, a monster. And once the world found out about it, it was, you know, game over for that. It was just like, you know, he became a superstar so quickly. Yeah. Um, and he was really one of the first, one of the, you know, the, I think the people who would would be able to uh, say that they benefited from Napster because John's ascension began when Napster was really starting to take off and people were file sharing. And so John's music was being shared in this new platform that no one, you know, they never had access to files like this before. So he really benefited from just sort of the word of mouth that was happening as people were just discovering Napster and people were sharing files and um, and no one knew what to do about it or what to make of it. It was just like, oh, I guess this is happening. So that was my history with him too. Uh, you'll appreciate this story probably. I was visiting a friend of mine at Columbia in New York, and sitting outside his office was John Mayer on the computer because he was also one of the first people to like blog like on a regular basis yeah. in the music industry, certainly at least. And I was like, yeah, and I already knew that, but I was like, holy shit, here's this kid like just sitting here at the computer working it all day, you know, like a, like a desk job, you know? I mean, he definitely yeah. knew how to connect with his fans. At that he was moment. interacting with people. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, it was it was incredible. And you know, he his instincts are incredible. He is so smart, and he you know, as you've seen over the last twenty years, his ability to have this TV show on Instagram that just like he knows mm -hmm. what people want, and he is able to give it to him in a way that is pretty remarkable. Um, and you know, he's reinvented himself several times, and you know, now this this whole Dead and Company thing, it's like. He's he he is cementing himself as like the guitar player of this generation. To me, he's kind of he reminds me a lot of Eric Clapton. Like, and I don't know if that's kind of how he wanted to model himself, but he's at that level as a guitarist with the work he does yeah. with Dead and Company. But then obviously he's also musician and artist in and of itself. And it's like that's a that's a hard line the to toe in a modern era you just don't see people yeah. on that level operating on both you know cylinders like that yeah he he actually modeled himself after stevie ray vaughn oh, okay. and i think stevie ray vaughn was like his you know his hero on guitar and that's what, what stevie ray was like the reason he, he was able to lock himself in his bedroom and play guitar for 12 hours a day and just become a you know a master um anyway not to make this the john mayer podcast <laughs> but that was a big part of you know, the beginning few, the first few years of my career, like being involved with train and then being involved with John Mayer. And then we signed five for fighting. Mm -hmm. And then we signed Matt Carney and we had this run at hot AC radio and AAA that was oh, yeah. like unbelievable, like just unbelievable. And, um, you know, having the partner at Columbia was great because the radio team was incredible and the company was like crushing it with these bands that we were signing. So all, while all of that was happening, we were noticing that there were other bands out there that we wanted to work with that had labels. And man, the management game wasn't nearly as competitive or big as it is now. So back then, there was tons of bands that just didn't have managers. I, I just think, for the most part, the, the label business was so big and successful, and that's where people went to work because there were tons of jobs. They were They paid well. And I just don't think... I think management, you know, again, like 20 some years ago, it just was looked at differently. Um, so we just went, hey, we should start managing some of these bands because they have label deals, but they don't have managers. And that's how we started working with Glenn. Um, there was a band that I loved on Epic named Verbo out of oh, Chicago yeah. that I started working with. And Jason, the front man, is still a good friend of mine to this day. And he, uh, you know, I loved that band. Unfortunately, they, they didn't make it where they should have but we started managing bands and liz fair became a client not of mine but of the company's um and then greg uh through one of his contacts started working with the fray and that was before they had ever played outside of colorado no one knew who they were um and so then they were a management client and that really sort of established us as a management company as well as a label and as you know as we saw the label business starting to suffer from from digital and you know from downloads and napster and all these things we thought like okay we need to a diversify and start managing bands mm -hmm. and b maybe start getting out of the label business you know like start phasing out the label right. side and start focusing on management so we really we brought in a few extra employees and we started like focusing on signing clients and and managing bands and you know for the first couple of years just like when i had that stir cd dropped on my desk and you know i was told to get it on the radio like i had no idea what i was doing when we started managing bands we had no idea what we were doing either i mean there was a, a band that i won't name that, um they were on tour and 
you know, I was just not very organized because I didn't really know what I was doing. And they missed a show because I didn't fax them their itinerary. So they just wow. missed the show in San Antonio and it was entirely <laughs> my fault. And I felt horrible, but I realized I had to start getting my shit together. I needed to get organized. I needed to have a plan to actually manage a band and a manage a business. So it was a, it was a low stakes mistake to learn a big lesson. And that allowed me to sort of start really taking this seriously. Um, and then in 2006, we started working with Brandy Carlisle and she came to us through our attorney who had been our, our company's attorney for 10 years. And, um, okay. She had recently hired him at the suggestion of her longtime booking agent. And we went, Greg and I went and met with her and her and the twins, Tim and Phil. Somehow, some way, they hired us. And, um, you know, I've been working with Brandy and the twins since early 2006. So that was a, you know, that was a, a good one because she was on Columbia. We had such good relationships with all those people there. Um, and I, I think that helped, but, um, you know, when we started, she had just sold out the show box in Seattle, which is about a thousand tickets. And she did, we, we were, I was living in Chicago during this whole time, um, 96 to 2013, I was in Chicago. So after college, I moved to Chicago to start working at aware and she did like 450 or 500 people at the Metro, right, right around the time she started with us. So, um, you know, now she, you know, last summer she did about 8,000 people in Chicago at Northerly Island and she did 16,000 people at the Gorge here in Seattle. So, you know, sold out Madison Square Garden last year and all, and all those things. So the yeah. the growth was steady since the beginning and, you know, to, to see where she started when from when we jumped in and, you know, she had been working for 10 years before that playing, you know, to five people at any place in Seattle that would that would let her bring a PA. So um, 2006 was really the sort of the turning point, I think, for me, where I was like full-time management and really focused on becoming a good manager uh, as, as the company was sort of, again, phasing away from the label game a little bit and just not making it such a priority. Right. Yeah. The things that kind of stand out to me as you uh, kind of ran through all that is uh, just the ability to kind of have a, a bit of guidance through all this. You know, it seems like Greg really took you under his wing, you know, early on uh, once you settled in Chicago. Um, obviously, getting that kind of deep dive lesson in radio promotion when you went out to LA and shadowed somebody for a few days. I'm sure. I would assume those opportunities kind of showed you uh, in some respects, oh, if, if I can like spend some time around some people that are doing something like this, I can gleam a lot from that, that kind of mentorship kind of aspect. And then, you know, see how this unfolds. I mean, it feels like AWARE was in a place where it allowed you guys to just do what, is probably the hardest thing to do as a manager, which is surround yourself with really good music and then find your way through that. It wasn't really a mentorship though. It was such chaos for all of us because we were, we were, su okay. we were such yeah. a small company and, you know, Greg was new to the business too, and he was figuring it out and he was operating at a really high level. 
you know, dealing with, you know, some top people at some of these big companies. And so it, it, for me and the other few people that work there, it really was like, figure it out. And it's a great way to learn because you're sort of thrown into this and you have to learn how to build a rep program and run it. And you have to learn how to deal with these people and keep them motivated. And then you have to figure out radio and how to like call stations and try to get airplay and get them to listen to your records and then press. And, you know, like all of these areas, we were just sort of all on our own. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, you have to be a jack of all trades. And it's sort of the, the bootstrap mentality that I've been able to carry through my whole career where it's, you know, there's no job too big or too small. You just got to get the job done. And so, um, right. This like hustle attitude that I, that I had to learn to survive has really carried me a long way. And there was a lot of people that would come and go and work at the company and especially young people who think they want to work in the music business. And so they get out of college and then they get a job in the music business and then they realize it's really difficult and it's not just like hanging out with bands and, you know, um, listen to music all day. So, so many people and friends of mine still that, have, that came and went pretty quickly just when they realized it really wasn't for them. I feel really fortunate that I've been able to do this for, you know, I'm on year 24 now and, um, you know, knock on wood, hopefully I, I have many more in, in front of me. Yeah, well, it definitely compounds, I think, not only the experience, but also the success, you know. That helps. Um, I think if you, yeah, no, it definitely helps. And, you know, going back to um, the one artist you mentioned that you really love that didn't quite get the fair shake. I mean, God, there's so many stories that I'm sure, you know, all yeah. of us could share of, of that. Um, but there's also, uh, I think there's something to be said for just sticking it out. Persistence, you know um goes a long way uh i mean up until i remember even i guess it's been almost a couple of years now uh but when brandy played at the the grammys it's like that was a moment where a lot of people you know first i wouldn't necessarily just say discovered her but became more aware of her in that sense uh because there was definitely some other touch points earlier in her career that a lot of people might have bumped up against her but that was like a moment, obviously, and that, that record was a moment for you guys and for her. But, um, you know, that's not overnight success. That's years of hard work, you know. It's 20 years of overnight success for her. I mean, she's 39 now. She was 38 on that Grammy performance. She had been doing this for 23, 24, 20, you know, I mean, since she was a teen. Yeah. And so, yes, while it feels overnight to the masses, the people that have been with her have been with her for a very long time and seen this like every time she comes back to a new market playing the next size up and the next size up and selling them out and it's been remarkable to watch as there's never been a huge spike but when there's not a huge spike there's also not a huge drop and so we've been able to right. you know continually move in the right direction which is really really difficult and it's just a testament to how incredible she is and the songs and her voice and her charisma and her her instincts and her knowledge and her fans and it's been incredible to be a part of this yeah it's been been fun to watch you know from the sidelines because i you know the other thing I, I i think is really unique is when you have an artist that has that long trajectory and you know gets that moment you know not only are they a little bit more situated and prepared for it but you know there's like no loss of energy like the amount of work that 
you know, you guys were doing up until earlier this year, obviously, and then also just creatively, you know, the various projects that she was working on, on the heels of this, um, you know, success, I think, shows the determination. And there's this few artists that that pick up on that and run with it, you know, so it's uh, always endearing to see somebody like have a moment like that and then make the most of that moment too and just keep going instead of kind of relaxing for a second um and putting the brakes on because you know to some degree you can there's been zero relaxing i can tell you that (laughs) so how did you uh was it brandy that brought you out to seattle then so my actually no so i left so uh continued to manage brandy and a couple of the clients until 2013 and then she and i left aware together and we went and joined red light we talked to a couple companies and um went to red light and there was only one other red light employee in chicago he's on the radio team and he didn't live anywhere near me and there's no office so i was kind of on an island and i was like joined a new company and um had left the one I had been with for 17 years. And it was an interesting transition. You know, you don't really realize how much of your identity is wrapped up in something until it's taken away. And I really was like kind of feeling that for the first time, like it was my only job since college and one that I had enjoyed so much and had so much success with. And it was, you know, I just had such an incredible run there. And so there was definitely a transition of like, oh, okay, this is different. I'm like an an anonymous person at a huge company and I'm working by myself trying to like make my way. Um, And so kind of coincidentally, a year later, my sister had her first baby and she lives in Seattle and she's my only sibling. And my wife and I were in San Francisco for the holidays with her family. And we flew up to Seattle to see the baby who was a couple weeks old and we were flying in. And I remember I was looking out the window and just seeing lakes and trees everywhere. It was incredible. And I just turned to her and I said, let's move to Seattle. And she said, okay. So it was really that simple. We just (laughs) went, okay, we're going to move here. And, you know, she's from the West coast. So she's always wanted to sort of live by mountains in the West coast and closer to family. And we were sort of on a family Island in Chicago. So with my job changing our kids being really young, still, we thought this is the perfect time to sort of make a move like this. So we very quickly decided we were going to do that and moved about six months later. And um, at the same time, Jason Colton, who worked for red light and has worked for red light for at that point for like 10 years or something, he was in the Charlottesville office, the headquarters, and he was moving out to Seattle too with his family. And so kind of just coincidentally, we moved here the same week in July and we didn't really know each other. We had met a few times, but we didn't know each other. And um, we decided we were gonna open an office. So we, I think in November that year, found a space. We moved into the Recording Academy's space, um, sort of in Lower Queen Anne. And, um, we moved in and we hired sort of an office assistant office manager and then uh, we brought in another manager who is in town rachel flotard who works with nico case Um, she came to red light and started working out of our office and then we've added a few people since then so we have a little team there's six people we have a nice office and hopefully one day we will be back in it but um so it's it was really helpful for me to sort of feel a little more integrated with the company 
to be working closely with Jason, who had been at the company forever. Um, you know, he's got some some big and great clients, so he's really experienced too. So it it was a nice shift for me personally to sort of start fresh in Seattle and be closer to family and and professionally it was a great move too. And Brandy lives out here. So that was another component of it that was helpful, but that wasn't really that what the decision was based on. It was just kind of a, a gut, gotcha. like, let's just do this. Well, obviously it was meant to be the fact that, uh, you know, Jason was making that move at the same time, you know, I mean, what are the yeah. odds of that? Yeah. It worked great. <laughs> we work together on blind pilot now, but, um, just being around him and seeing he operates in such a different way than I do. So it's interesting to see someone hmm. that sort of handles the same job so differently in many ways. Um, you can learn a lot from people like that. Yeah. So uh, what ways in particular? We sort of focus on different things. Um, I, you know, rarely get involved with the graphics or the aesthetic of the band or things like that. And that's something he's really passionate about. So the things I, I sort of looked, I look at different things and he looks at things like that. And, um, you know, so when we work together on a band like Blind Pilot, we both sort of bring our separate skills to the table along with all the things that we share. So um, it's just, a, you know, again, it's like, that's something I never would think to focus on or, you know, it's a creative component. I don't, I tend not to get too involved creatively with the with my bands, you know, like they're the artists, it's their decision. But I've learned that you can be a real, you can add a lot of value by sort of participating in these conversations more. And I've seen it with him and, you know, he works with fish and fish is extremely creative and they do, you know, these wild things on new year's Eve. And, and that's something that he's involved with. And so just, you know, again, like sort of seeing his level of involvement and care and how precious it is. It's, it's been really helpful. No, you're bringing up a good point too. I'm, I'm always curious because a lot of, um, a lot of folks either kind of lean, like you said, one way or the other, like kind of dabble a little bit in the creative side of things, but, or otherwise kind of lean the other direction, which is more, you know, on the business side, but the role of a manager, you know, is hard to define that way. You know, there's quite often, uh, every artist is a little different and quite often you get pulled into that and you have a need for, you know, speaking to the creative side. But then I know myself, I was fortunate to work with a lot of artists that were, you know, to your point, very much driven artistically to the degree there wasn't much room or I never felt like I had much room to really speak on any yeah. of the creative element of it. Um, but every everybody's different uh, to a large degree. Um, I was going to ask you, that kind of leads me uh, to this question too, like how do you find and ultimately decide when to start that kind of relationship with an artist? Because, I mean, obviously the poll initially, for the most part, is probably going to be the music, the creative side of it. But then you have to have the vision on the business side of it, too, to some degree. It's like, oh, where can I, How do? what's my role in this and how yeah. can I grow this or play a part in it? Um, so what are some of the touch points that you found um, that draw you in? Generally, it's the music first. And I've, you know, I've made this mistake over the years of letting my love and passion for the music blind me to the other warning signs you know like um and vice versa i've been found myself in situations where the 
the business has been so enticing that I've overlooked the music and it's hard to do it either way. You really have to love the music or else you're just like selling widgets, you know, and it's, you can pay the bills that way. And there's a lot of, a lot to be said for that. It's important. Um, but it's hard to get motivated when you just aren't super, super passionate about the music. Um, and then, you know, the other, the flip side is when you are so passionate about the music, it blinds you to the reality of what's outside of it, which is maybe not a lot of people are interested in the music or the person is not the best person or they're hard to work with or whatever. And you sort of think that you can, your ego kicks in and you think you can make the difference. You alone are the reason that this artist hasn't been more successful. And it's usually not the case, you know, like the the success and failure of a band for the most part is on the music and the artist. It's not on the team. It's not on the manager for both good and bad. Um, so I think it's it's easy to sort of get lost in either side of that. And the only way that I've been able to strike a balance is through trial and error and many years of doing it. And, you know, there's been some some clients I've looked at and looked very seriously at and I've ultimately just said I, I shouldn't do this for one reason or another. And um, I'm glad I'm learning because it's when you make the commitment to to manage an artist, I mean, it's a multi-year commitment and it's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of stress. And in a lot of cases, it's for no money. And so you have to be willing to do right. it basically for free because in a lot of cases, that's what it's going to be. So you know, as I've gotten older, I've become a little more uh, discerning of some of this stuff. But, you know, it's easy to fall in love with the song. And it's, that's like a powerful, powerful force. It is. Yeah. And it's it's also no matter how good any of us get at identifying the talent component and reading the individual or the group and what the potential is there for them. Uh, it, there's so many other elements to go into it. It's just, yeah, it's a hard thing to bet on unless you can find that more complete picture of, oh yeah, not only, yeah, like you said, I guess, you know, you summed it up quite well. Like, am I willing to do this for free yeah. for a while? <laughs> Essentially, like, can I put my passion into it and roll the dice and, and hope that we all get to a better place, you know, where this becomes more of a business and more yeah. viable. And it, it's tough. It's, t you know, it's tough. It's a hard, like I was saying earlier, it's such a hard business. It's hard to be in it. It's hard to stay in it. It's hard to be an artist in it. It's hard to make a living from it. Um, and, you know, now that we're going through this pandemic, you can see how vulnerable artists are to the shutdown of any kind where you disrupt their mm -hmm. revenue stream because so many artists, the revenue streams are what keeps them alive. And it's, you know, it's a meager amount of money. It's not, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars. I mean, obviously for some it is, but, you know, these sort of mid-level bands, when they can't tour, it's really tough. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. And it's hard to see because music has played such a big role in my life. I think it's one of the great things humans have ever created. And, um, you know, I think it deserves to have a, I mean, it plays such a huge role in so many people's lives. It sort of deserves to be a viable 
business, but it's really hard for it to be a viable business for bands and business people alike. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a good point, too. It's like this is a really interesting time because it kind of cuts both ways. You know, I mean, there's a lot, like you said, like mid-level artists, the touring is probably their most immediate cash flow generating opportunity um, for a livelihood component. But then on the flip side of that, too, I mean, I think you and I were, were texting around my birthday back in April just about, you know, missing going to see festivals and stuff. It's like I have never had this long of a drought in my adult life of not seeing live music in person. And it's like, just from a personal level, um, you know, not having that engagement is, you know, I don't know. It's very bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's the only way really to describe it. And uh, I think it, it, you know, it hurts on both sides to a large degree. Plus I think with music being so omnipresent and available in your pocket now to listen to, there's something really unique about seeing somebody perform too. It's like that, that is a stronger connection point that, that maybe rivals or comes pretty close to what, you know, you hear or feel when you first hear a song that just resonates or an artist that resonates with you. And it's like, you can recreate that a little bit through listening to a record, but it's not the same as seeing somebody perform. Um, yeah, I definitely miss that yeah. moment as much as the artist. I'm sure I miss it. You know, sports and music, like I said, are my two favorite things. And the thought of being in an arena during a sporting event, cheering in the same moment for something, just, it's like, it gives me this intoxicating feeling that I wish I could have, you know, and it's the same when you're in a crowd uh, at a concert where you're just, you know, you and whether it's 20 people or 20,000 people are united in this adoration for whatever's about to happen on stage is so important. It's so important to me. Mm -hmm. And it's something I've really longed for over the last couple of months. And it really just sucks that it's taken away from us. You know, the, the thing I've, the, one of the conclusions I've come to in my life over this, this time is I wish I had a time machine. And if I had a time machine, I probably would go back to the early seventies and just follow Pink Floyd around every show they do. Because there's something about that band that speaks to like my soul in a way that few artists do. And, and during the last couple of months, I've listened to a lot of Pink Floyd. And my desire to see these songs live has been so strong. But I would want to see it live mm. in that setting of like 1971 and when they're playing Echoes and it's 23 minutes and it's like, God, I wish, I wish, I wish I had a time machine because I would really, I would go there. I wouldn't go buy like Apple stock in 1998 or, you know, <laughs> I, I like, I mean, I probably eventually would get to buy an Apple stock in 1998, but the thought of touring with Pink Floyd is like the thing I want the most. And it's something that I haven't, ever thought about until this pandemic and listening to music a lot and listening to Pink Floyd a lot and realizing like the, that moment speaks to my soul. And I, you know, I, I would do anything to be able to make that happen. No, I'm so glad you shared that. Cause I, yeah, a flood of similar ideas kind of float to my mind. Like I think of somebody like Otis Redding, like what would it have been like to see somebody like yeah. that perform, you know, in person, like if you could, and if you could strip away, it's almost like watching a, a black and white movie. Like if you stop for a moment and go, how do I visualize what this looked like in color for a second? It's a very similar kind of 
thing like what would it be like to stand in front of a crowd and and hear somebody that projects the way he did and his level of energy like it's almost palpable on film but it's like what would it have been like to to see in person you know um that that level of you know performance is kind of unrivaled in a you know different way than pink floyd but you know you still very coming from a similar place of just an experience you can't replicate. I will say I was fortunate enough to see David Bowie play twice and I have seen a lot of really great performers, but he definitely had a certain air to him that, you know, just comes with years of experience. You know, it's like he just was totally comfortable at entertaining. It's almost like you'd imagine what it would have been like to see like Frank Sinatra in the fifties or sixties, you know, his height of his career. It's like this level of comfortability and connection is just very few people have that you know uh and very few people have the opportunity to perform that long to develop that you know i mean we're just now seeing seeing artists that from our generation you know from those early to mid 90s you know a lot of them either didn't survive or don't really operate at that level um into same you know uh same space nowadays to even get that far you know to kind of emulate yeah. that kind of you know a lot of it uh you know you mentioned you know john spending time on guitar like stevie ray spent time on guitar a lot of it's just spending time on stage in front of people uh it's like yeah. I, I i worry that we don't the streaming era and the pause on live performance is sti- maybe not stifling creativity as much but it's stifling performance and that level of performance uh for a generation potentially if this thing drags out you know yeah but there's this whole new generation of people performing on tiktok mm-hmm. they're just performing in a different way so i think maybe the cumulative effect of this is more people are going to be creating more people are going to be um sharing their sort of creative energy with the world and maybe it's not as many musicians but maybe it is you know we, we, we really don't know the the thing about the pink floyd time machine really what ultimately is what uh, it draws me to this concept is like being in the mm-hmm. crowd with 20,000 people sharing this moment. And that is what I was trying to equate to like what's missing in my, our lives is we can't see shows. Right. It's one thing to see the songs, but really I want to like be in the moment with the other 20,000 people who are sharing the same experience. And that goes back to like missing sporting events and screaming at a moment on on the field or on the court that everyone is united in this excitement and it's so important and you know what we will be there again it's just when and what's it going to look like and all that stuff um when you're talking about otis redding it makes me think about the other things that i sort of long for it's those same moments right before or in a early uh, February, the Lone Bellow band I work with was did two nights of the Troubadour, and the Troubadour in the front lobby, which I had never seen before, had um, has this sort of um, I don't know what you call it. It's these like several poster boards that are laminated, and it's the Guns and Roses history at the Troubadour, and there are photos of when it was L.A. Guns and when it was uh, whatever the other band was that Axel was in before they became Guns N' Roses and had photos of those shows. And then it had photos of like first time Guns played. And then, you know, the next panel was like their third show, the first time they played My Michelle live. And then 
more photos from another show. The first time they ever played Sweet Child of Mine. And it takes you through, they did like 40 shows there or something. And it takes you through the history of like, this is like 1986, you know, of guns that what led up to Guns N' Roses and then all of their shows. And it was like, I don't even know, their 15th show that sold out. I mean, they played a handful of shows that didn't sell out. So then you're like in a crowd watching Axel and Slash and Duff and those guys finding their way to this band. You know, people were at these shows and they got to see this band. And so seeing this thing laid out at the Troubadour is, is really incredible because the origin stories of these bands are so mm-hmm. important and people don't know it. They just think, oh, they made Appetite and then they put out a double album and then, you know, they became D-bags and then everyone hated <laughs> them. And, you know, yeah. uh, you know, it's like when you when you simplify the arc of a band, it's like, oh, this is the point when people turned down this band because they kept showing up late. And, you know, they canceled the show I was supposed to go to. I was supposed to see them at the Pontiac Silverdome with Metallica. And I never got to see Guns in their heyday. Oh, no. And I think we had tickets to a show at the Palace in Detroit, too. And that show didn't happen. I finally saw them at Coachella a couple years ago on the comeback. And the thing I learned, I realized was, oh, my God, Slash is this band. That was my takeaway from that show. It was like, I mean, I knew he was incredible and I knew his solos and his guitar work on these records, but seeing it live was just like, holy shit, slash. Wow, that's so interesting because I saw the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers at Coachella, I think it was 2003, and that was when John Frusciante was still playing with them. And all four of them are incredibly talented in their own right, and they work really well together as a unit. Um, I give them full props. But John Frusciante is totally out shined everybody at that performance as a guitarist as an instrumentalist and as, even as a vocalist he sounded better than anthony Kita and this it was wow. it was fascinating i mean i i just completely honed in on him I, i'll tell you my guns and roses story i went to farm aid in 1990 um in indianapolis and because axel's from indiana he wanted to play farm aid so um, that was their last performance with Steve Adler on drums. They fired him the week later. Wow. And you can, I'll, I'll send you the clip on YouTube because it was on a, the Nashville network broadcasted the whole show. And uh, so it's on tape and it's on YouTube. But Steve runs out and trips and falls and his shin goes right into the drum riser. And you, you just look at it and go, God, that, that must have hurt. And he was just so, apparently he was just so off his rocker. It was just... The band couldn't. He didn't feel. Yeah, a he thing. didn't feel a thing, and the band did not. You know, they were. I guess they were at that point. They were so ambitious. They were over that aspect of of their careers. But they uh, they played Civil War for the first time, which was just phenomenal. And and yeah. uh, then they played a UK sub song called um, something to do with farm. I can't remember. Down here on the farm, and it was great. So I only got to see him play two songs, yeah. but I, I can at least say I got to see the original lineup, <laughs> you know, play two pretty yeah. stellar songs um, in the midst of that. That Farm A was uh, poignant, too, because Elton John was in town because Ryan White was passing away of AIDS. And um, as a, a way to kind of channel some of that grief, they they asked him to come down and play. And he came and played a few songs that day. And it was he was so nice. emotional, you know, in that performance because of everything that was going on but it was just um oh and i saw garth brooks that day for the first time too before garth brooks was a huge thing it was crazy wow that was a it big was a farm, farm aid. Aid. lou reed played which was great iggy pop it was really great 
uh, Farm Aid, actually. Wow. But uh, yeah, that's my my gun story uh, for sure. Gosh, I hope we got it. Yeah, hopefully we have some more uh, opportunity. One of the last shows I went to was uh, Brandy's show here at uh, Fillmore when it opened in Minneapolis. Oh, nice. Uh, which was on Valentine's Day, which was fantastic. And um, yeah. yeah, I think the actual last show I saw was about a month later, Nathaniel Rateliff, uh State Theater. Um, but yeah. What was the last show you saw? Uh, the Lone Bellow played at the Neptune in Seattle the day before Seattle or Washington State went on lockdown. Really? And we really debated it, whether it should happen. In hindsight, it seems insane. Mm-hmm. But at the time, everyone was so like, we weren't really sure what was going on. So they, they decided to do it. I think like there was like 200 no-shows or something. So a decent amount of, because remember Washington State right. was the first place with COVID. So um, so we did that. And then I think they played it. Yeah, they played in Portland the next night. And then the, then the last couple of shows in California, we had to cancel. And they hightailed at home. But um, yeah, same thing. It's like, I'm it, it'll come back somehow, some way. This isn't the end of no, our lives, no, no, you know, no. but um, it's just, it's the uncertainty is so unfortunate for so many reasons. And um, the thought of, you know, not being at a concert again is just crippling, but yeah, you know, yeah, one definitely, day. Indeed. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat. No problem, man. Um, appreciate you letting me ramble on. Thanks to our guest, Mark, and thanks to you for allowing us to occupy your airspace today. I'd like to thank my friend, Tony Miracle, for the theme music and graphics for Tough Love. And if you get the opportunity to, we'd love for you to rate us, follow us, and above all, share this podcast with all your friends and fellow music industry and artist communities. It takes a village. You can reach us at chris at Anadonia Management. That's C-H-R-I-S at A-N-H-E-D-O-N. IAMGMT.com. Be well, trip up, get back up, and let's learn as we go. Until next time.